I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Certainly, I know people who have not compromised at all and ended up kind of old and lonely sitting there with their list of accolades. This is Graham Zimmerman. Graham loves climbing massive alpine routes at the remote corners of the earth, where the margin between life and death is not only thin, but also really difficult to see or sense. That, however, to me, is not what makes him interesting. Graham is one of the kindest, most intelligent, genuinely enthusiastic, decidedly not self-serious, dare I say goofy, thoughtful people I've met. He clearly places the people he cares about, his wife in particular, Shannon, his family and friends ahead of everything else on the important scale. Most days he goes to work at the company he founded, making films and podcasts. On the outside, he's pretty normal. Graham is a world-class alpinist. Graham owns a Labradoodle. There is no great blueprint for navigating this duality. I think about this in a lot of ways, kind of in terms of my influences when I was a younger climber and what the priorities were and what style was valued. The first expedition I went on to the kind of greater Himalaya, if you will, it was to the Pamir Alai in southwestern Kyrgyzstan. And it was in 2008, and I was 22 years old, and I was young, and I was fired up. And I had been reading a lot of literature from the kind of like core climbing alpinism ethos at the time, which was all based around the more you leave behind, the more simple and pure the experience is, this kind of like Nietzschean hard man attitude towards climbing. And it was something I was just, I thought was awesome. And I went on this trip and, and we were really successful. We made the first ascent of this really big technical face and did so in this like really pure clean style and didn't bring anything and the fact of the matter is that if a storm had come in on that climb we did not have enough gear to get ourselves off of it i don't think that at the time i was visualizing what a fine line we were writing we have the influences before us that we get to take into consideration but then you know as we really start to engage with what they've taught us oftentimes we find that they're flawed to the point where like their influences might kill you so i started finding that some of these characters were people who i didn't actually want to be like and it really led me down this path of saying okay cool who do i want to be like oftentimes in our community the path towards success is pitched to us as an unwavering uncompromising focus that's how you succeed by having a ruthless drive toward summits. While our heroes are legends, they may succeed in the mountains, 
we oftentimes realize that that comes at a cost. In other areas of their life, they struggle in their finances, their personal relationships, and that chase for summit after summit, it's not really sustainable in the long term. Climbing becomes the easy part. Holding it together gets hard. Graham knew that if he was going to be happy in life, he needed a different kind of role model, a different path to follow. Right about then, Steve Swenson gave him a call and asked him if he wanted to go climbing. People, work, mountains. How do we create a full life? Make space for what's important to us. Today we present a story of two friends at different stages in life, an unclimbed peak in the Karakoram, and taking a 50,000 foot view to life. You can have it all, but you're gonna have to work for it. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Back in the 60s, when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then my dad was like, well, you wear glasses. You know, those are all test pilots. You never get to be an astronaut. This is Steve Swenson. Then I saw magazines with people climbing in the Himalayas. And I'm like, whoa, that looks like the moon. You know, I'm going to go there. I really feel like that childhood desire of wanting to explore the world and go to these kind of remote places and see what was there. and and explore them in a dramatic kind of way is, is a big part of that passion that I have for climbing. It's, it's the thing that drives it. Steve has been climbing at an elite level for 50 years. Not many people can say that. He's been there to witness climbing's evolution and expansion. The 60s, early 70s was a period of time when a lot of technical climbing on the world's biggest mountains was just starting to happen. You know, Mesner and Doug Scott and Chris Bonington, and they're of that vintage. But the Karakorma was closed during this time that kind of activity was happening. So when it opened up, it was like a candy store of, of things to do. The Karakorum range sits between Pakistan, India, and China. It's the second highest mountain range in the world, with eight summits over 7,500 meters and four of them over 8,000 meters. The Karakorum is home to K2, the second highest peak in the world. Much of the range sits on or near the disputed border between Pakistan and India. Geopolitical tensions have kept many of these areas closed to outsiders. The Karakoram just appealed to me because the mountains looked pointy and rocky and rugged and they uh, looked like mountains that I wanted to go climb. And at that time in the late 70s and into the early 80s, there was a lot of potential for first ascents. Steve took his first trip to the Karakoram in 1980. It was a time when people sent messages with letters, not sat phones. It may have been a little bit like going to the moon at that stage. Access to the region was constantly changing as territorial disputes between the countries that border it flared. Steve followed the region politically and started to get a sense for which areas that had been closed were about to open. He got really good at expedition climbing and all the logistics that are part of it. K2 in 1990 without oxygen. Everest in 1994, no oxygen. Nanga Parbat, Leetok 2, 
Sasser Congri II in 2011, which earned him the prestigious Pilate d'Or or the annual award for the most visionary alpine climb. Basically, this list of peaks, they're some of the biggest, most technical, scariest, imposing, and inspiring mountains in the world. Steve had successes, but there were also a lot of failures. He got a reputation for being able to compromise with the mountains, able to take a step back and figure out how to come home safe. There were also years where the range was shut down because of tensions between the two countries. There were 15 trips over three decades. 30 years on the cutting edge. That's almost impossible to do. Without a doubt, Steve Swenson is an enigma. Here's Graham again. He's somebody who's been on a lot of trips, and he's somebody who has maintained motivation and fitness and strength and health for a long time in a realm that sees a lot of people slowly kind of move move away from it. And then if you zoom out from that, I think he's had a really great perspective on how climbing balances with the rest of his life. Steve has been super successful in his career. He's been successful as a family man. He's been successful as a member of the climbing community in terms of like the American Alpine Club and stuff like that. He's always willing to step back and take that 50,000 foot view and really see everything in perspective. One of the things that I've had to do in my climbing career is as I get older, I always have to find younger people to go with because all the people that I had climbed with for years, they'd pretty much stopped climbing for various different reasons, or they hadn't survived. So I'm always looking at, you know, who's the next generation of alpinists? And probably in the late 90s, I started climbing with Steve House Mm -hmm. uh, when he was really young. And I did some Alaska trips, and I did a couple of trips with him to to the Karakoram. And then what happens is that these young guys, they're better technically than me and I'm getting older and they move on to bigger and greater things. Mm -hmm. And then I look for who's the next one. You know, I can learn something from them, they can learn something from me. Steve saw Graham stringing together expeditions and growing successes in the mountains. Graham had a reputation for being safe, level-headed, determined, and also fun to be around. A rare combination of traits for an alpinist. It was right about the time that Graham was figuring out both climbing and the balance between his life. Steve reached out. They struck up a friendship. Steve had raised two sons with his wife and was part owner in a civil engineering firm in Seattle. He wasn't a sponsored athlete or a grizzled dirt bag. He went to kids' soccer games and climbed all over the world. Steve saw a little of himself in Graham. He's got humility. He's not trying to prove something to somebody or compete with somebody. You know, he had all the right reasons for doing it. And I could see that. And Steve had something to offer Graham. A lot of experience in the Karakoram, an area that Graham had wanted to go to, but had had problems securing permits. So the two made a plan. In 2015, part of the Karakoram opened, and Steve and Graham, along with Scott Bennett, went to climb K6 and Changi Tower. Then, in 2017, after 16 years of closure, Steve caught wind that one of the region's biggest unclimbed peaks, one that he had already attempted but failed at in 2001, would reopen. If you asked a five-year-old to draw a picture of a mountain, they'd pretty much draw Lynxar. 
It's this pointy mountain. It's really big. It's got a lot of snow. It's got a lot of ice. It's got a lot of rock. You know, that says nothing to how simple or complex it is to climb or how big it is. But, you know, it's one of those peaks that it's really, really attractive. It just looks like a mountain, which is so cool. Steve and Graham teamed up with another climber, Chris Wright. Going back to Linksar, you know, after so many years, kind of felt a little bit like that, like I'd been there. The mountain didn't change, really. I could climb up to where I'd been exploring before and found the old little tent platform still chopped out of the gravel where I'd put a little bivy tent from 16 years before. We spent a lot of time in 2017 exploring. There were these cliff bands kind of low down that were almost like a, like a barrier to get to the peak itself. And we spent over a month just figuring that out. At the end of the day, we'd go up at ridges and they'd be dead ends. You know, one day I was up climbing with Graham and climbing off into the mist in this thing that just goes off into some knife-edged ridge with crappy rock and we have to turn around and figure out another one. I'm a little bit discouraged and Graham just turns and says to me, Steve, this is exactly what I came here for. This is real exploring. And uh, it, was, it was great. And uh, we noticed that the Ibex were going over this little pass to connect meadows on either side of the Linksar Glacier for them to graze. And we just went over there and followed them. And it, it was this little slot you could drop down the other side about three or 400 feet to another glacier that just went around everything. Mm -hmm. And we were able to figure that out. And, 2017, which then really got us to grapple with the, the mountain itself. The team made it to about 6,000 meters and waited for a weather window that never came. They came down and committed to returning. It might be easy to think of turning around as a failure, but if you ask Steve, it's really not. He's still climbing, he's climbing the Karakoram, and he came home alive. That's important. That humility and perspective sort of hard to come by in today's world of alpinism. I have to be humble enough to realize that this is not the right time. Either the conditions or the weather or my partners come back later, you know, when it's right. And I think people get that confused. They think the goals are the most important thing. And that's why it drives me nuts when people have these checklists of like peaks that they want to climb because it's sort of like, it's not about that. It's not about those things, you know, unless there's something particular about each one of those mountains you want to do, but just the fact that they're on a checklist, to me, is sort of strange. Because, you know, really those goals, for me, really, I've learned to really just be the inspiration that you have to kind of live the life that you want to live. And when you finish one, then you have to have another one because that's what keeps you going. And so I think that's why I'm willing to fail because it's really not that important. I think it's worth noting that a trip like this for a lot of us, it would be a crowning achievement, a pinnacle, just to even go, right? But for climbers like Steve and Graham, it's part of a process, a really long one that might unfold over years or decades. They fail, they learn, they come home, and then they start the whole process of permitting, training, organizing in the nooks and crannies between career and family. That is a regimented juggling act in itself. There were climbing opportunities that I had to say no to that would have been cool, but it just wasn't the right timing, you know, with my family and my career. There were 
opportunities I had in my career, promotions and things where I would have to travel a lot. And I said no to that because there was no way that if my job involved getting on a plane Sunday night, coming back on Thursday, and then going climbing for the weekend, and that's what I was doing every week, I, my family life would not have worked. So I just kept my, all my work local so that you know I would come home every night for dinner, and I, I would do all my workouts at lunchtime so that when I came home in the evening after work, you know, I was there for the family. You have to be mindful of all this stuff, and you have to like your climbing so much and have such a passion and desire for it that if you want to do these other things at the same time, you have to do all that work. Graham realized that this was the role model he'd been looking for. Someone who saw the whole picture, not just the narrow view of the summit. I've spent months and months of my life now sitting in base camps with Steve, basically quizzing him on how he's done that because that's something I really want to emulate. I don't just want to climb peaks like Lynx are. I want to climb peaks like Lynx are and have a happy wife, and have a home, and have a successful career, and be a contributing member to society. And he's done a really good job. And that's something that you know, he and I have not only formed a really amazing friendship, but I really do consider him to be kind of one of my guiding lights in terms of how you put all these things together, because it's really tricky. At the center of all that is coming home safe. In July of 2019, Steve and Graham teamed up again for an expedition back to Linksar that would test that tenant. More after the break. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. In July of 2019, the team returned. Steve, Graham, Chris, and this time Mark Ritchie. Steve's longtime climbing partner. All are skilled alpinists. Two of them are in their 30s, and two of them are in their 60s. If there were a toolbox for climbing and expeditions, this team collectively had every single tool. In the case of going to Pakistan, the importance of those individual hard pitches goes down dramatically because there are so many other components to one of these climbs that have nothing to do with hard climbing and have everything to do with experience in getting the permit to go and how to set up base camp and your strategy of where to set up your advanced base camp and how to do that. Looking at a giant mountain face and saying, cool, I think we should sleep here, here, and here, and I think that this should be our strategy for how to get at that and do so safely. And those are things that require a lot more than strong forearms. That requires a lot of deep experience. And and Chris and I certainly have some of that, but 
the amount of time that Steve and Steve and Mark have spent on expeditions in the greater ranges is amazing. And to have him as one of our team members dramatically increased our chance of success and more importantly, our chance of coming home safe. The team moved through the hanging ibex fields, through the tiny pass into sections of rock mixed with ice and snow, where they climbed through the night to avoid the heat of the day and the rock and ice fall that come with it, through the complex terrain on steep glaciers they remembered from 2017. After five days of climbing, they reached a flat spot a thousand feet below the summit. They had a good weather forecast, there wasn't much left of the mountain, they were feeling pretty positive about making it to the top. We start the sixth day of climbing, and Chris led about three pitches of real good, kind of moderate alpine ice climbing. And then two pitches of just gross snow climbing, just kind of like digging upwards towards the summit. But we don't have that far to go, but it's just feeling like we're just getting nowhere fast. And, uh, and so he turns over the lead to me. I start climbing and I'm about half a pitch out. The snow changes and, and I'm like, oh man, like I'm not punching in as far. And I can start, I start kind of being able to move faster. I feel I start feeling more comfortable. He was out of view. He, there was kind of a rib of snow and he was around the corner to the left. And after 20 or 30 feet of terrain like that, I place one of my ice tools and it triggers a small slab of snow that catches me, knocks me off my stance and sends me for, for a tumble. I had just arrived at the belay. When he triggered that small slab, part of the slab popped over this little snow rib and came over the belay. And so the first thing that I knew was going on was that Chris yelled avalanche and so we all kind of hunkered down and this avalanche went over us and it was pretty frightening because when an avalanche starts coming over you have no idea whether it's going to be little or big. I like tumble down the snow slope and then fall off the cliff at the bottom of the snow slope. What I thought is this going to be some monster avalanche that's going to rip us out of the belay. And in the course of this I like take a huge whip onto a belay and I'm like below the belay. And it didn't, it was relatively small, it was over. But then uh, Chris was holding Graham on the rope. But like over a rib, so out of communication. We started yelling and the worst things come into your mind, like, oh my God, you know, he's dead or he's really hurt. And having a badly injured person 200 feet from the top of Lanksar, it would be a nightmare to try to have to deal with that and all those thoughts were going through my head. And so we were all really quite frightened about the prospects of what had happened to him. And, and I started yelling down. All I could see was the snow slope ending in a cliff band and the rope just going off the edge and that's all I could see. I was able to eventually establish communication with Graham and he says he's okay. The reason we don't fall when we're ice climbing is not because the gear doesn't work and not because the ropes don't work, it's because you have all this sharp stuff on. And so I kind of had to do this assessment of like, 
you know, did I sprain my ankle? Did I break my ankle? Did I like poke myself with an ice tool? Did I drop my camera? And I did, I did a pretty thorough inspection and I found that I had ripped a zipper pull off of my pants. <laughs> was the extent of the damage. <laughs> Which is like, okay, that's probably pretty manageable. <laughs> Steve started searching for an anchor. Graham would have to climb up the rope to get back up to everybody. What they needed was ice and all they had was a lot of loose snow. So Steve started digging, looking for an anchor. After two hours, he found a little patch of ice where he could get a screw in, and Graham made it back up the rope to Steve's anchor. They hugged. Now the team would have to decide whether to continue to the top. Steve's like, okay, so we're going down, right? He didn't ask me, like, oh, do you want to go down? He was like, yeah, dude, we're going down. And it was like, well, I, like, I'm done leading for a little bit, at least. I'm probably done leading for the rest of the climb, considering that we're, like, three pitches from the top. But man, if like somebody else can like deal with putting the rope up there, then let's go climb this thing because there's no way I'm coming back up here. (laughs) So we ended up continuing climbing. Chris took over the reins and did a second block on top of his first block and uh, did an amazing job. About 50 feet below the summit, the team found more deep snow on the ridge. It was unclear if they were above rock or if they were just standing on a loose cornice. It was pretty scary. They all started digging. Mark and Chris, they dug upwards, and Graham and Steve started digging to find a better anchor in case one of them fell again. They tunneled through the snow looking for a true summit. Finally, Mark and Chris made it to the top. They blay us up and just as the sun's going down, And it was amazing because it had been the clouds kind of rolling in all day. And then just as the sun went down and it cleared off. So we had this alpine glow across the entire care quorum. It was just this orange glow from K2 all the way over into the eastern care quorum in India. And you could see everything. On August 5th, 2019, Steve Swenson, Graham Zimmerman, Chris Wright, and Mark Ritchie became the first people to stand on top of Linksar, 18 years after the first trip that Steve took to the mountain. The moment wasn't lost on any of them. I mean, Steve is stoked that we sent. Of course, we all are. I don't think he would have been that worried if we hadn't, though. The pragmatism that he brings to climbing and to alpinism is so intense that I think that the success of coming home safe and in one piece, that is the number one goal, always. And he wasn't, he was never gonna let, you know, the fact that he's 65 and might not have that many more opportunities to do this kind of thing get in the way of that, which is really inspiring. To be there with Steve for this really amazing moment in his career as an alpinist was really special. Lynx art is a world-class climb. And as I get older, especially this last trip, I start seeing that my ability to keep doing this sort of thing is limited and I had to appreciate it every moment of it while I was there on that trip. I knew that and it was cool because I appreciated it in a way that I don't think 
I've been able to in the past because you know you always think well there's going to be another one and and I don't think there'll be another one for me quite like that um, other things but not quite as grand and it made me a little sad um, but it also made me appreciate my surroundings and what I was doing more than ever. I would just have days where I'm just like looking around and going, this is so amazing. You know, I just have to pinch myself because I'm in one of the most stunningly beautiful places in the world and only just a few people get to look at that and experience that and to really experience that in, in the way that we do when we're climbing these incredible mountains, especially that's never been climbed before, that's uh, just an incredible feeling that I never get tired of. If I get to be 97 years old and I'm laying on my deathbed and I'm thinking about my life, there's only two things that are going to really be important to me the quality of my relationships with other people, and the other one is, um, did I really put the work in to lead the kind of life that I wanted to lead? I'm not going to care about whether I climb K2 or Lanxar or any of those things. All of those things would have just been little things that maybe I accomplished along the way to lead the kind of life that I wanted to live and be the kind of person that I wanted to be. When I think about it, I'm not happy because I got to the top of some point on the planet. I'm happy because of all the things we had to do to get there. You know, the kind of teamwork that we had to have that was as close to perfection as I think I've experienced in my life. Thank you, Steve and Graham, for sharing your story. You can pick up Steve's book, Care Quorum, at Mountaineers Books or Amazon. You can follow Steve's adventures on Instagram at steve.swenson54 and follow Graham at Graham Zimmerman. A quick thank you to all of our listeners who have written to us recently. We had a bumper crop of Tales of Terror essays, and we have been delighted to read the little notes of thanks that you all have been sending. We so appreciate them that we share them with our whole team and post them on our recording booth. So if you've written to us recently, thank you. We have another opportunity for submitting essays during the month of October. That's right, the shorts. You can find out more at our website under the tab right for us, or follow us on Instagram at dirtbag underscore diaries for the latest info. Music today from Canyon Kids, Kai Engel, Fog Lake, and Cloud9. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or the artists. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Fitz Cahal and Ashley Langholz, editing by Cordelia Zars, and additional production help from me. I'm Becca Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.